Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Heard, uh, it sounded like Nashville got a shout out this morning. Did I hear somebody? Nope. Well, good morning. <laughs> it's good to see everybody today. Hope you're well. It's so good to be here. It's so good to be with family um, over this holiday season with our actual family here, but also with our actual church family this morning. Today is Christ the King Sunday, or the Feast of Christ the King, and uh, it is actually the end of the church year. So next week, as we begin Advent, it is actually the church's Happy New Year. So we celebrate that next week, so it's kind of the end of this cycle, of this season in the church calendar, Christ the King Sunday. And this Feast of Christ the King is a relatively new addition to the church calendar. In fact, it didn't arrive on the scene until 1925. Pius XI introduced this, and there was a little bit, there is a little bit of controversy over the addition of this feast of Christ the King. Today we celebrate, um, we reorient ourselves around the person of Jesus Christ as our King. And not only the King of us, but King of the world and King of the universe. Well, why would this be controversial? Well, this is very similar to what we do at Ascension Sunday, the Feast of the Ascension, when we recognize that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that he has authority and kingship over all things. So there are some scholars out there who will say, well, we're doing the same thing again. But as I reflected on this this week, um, and I don't know about you, I think we live in a world where so many things clamor for kingship. So many things clamor for authority and power in our lives and in the world that I don't think it hurts us one bit <laughs> to wrap up our year in the church remembering who our king is, remembering that his kingship is different than all the other kingships of our world, that we're part of a different story, and that's what we're doing today. Um, I think sometimes we are tempted by the authority of strong man in our life of authorities that are loud and this narrative that if we can just talk loud enough, if we can talk boldly enough, if we can claim authority enough, we can cause people to submit to us. But then on the other end, we're also tempted by a kind of laissez-faire or utilitarian vision of the world, where we say there's really no such thing as true authority at all. Maybe there is no such thing as one true story. There's just a bunch of little stories out there. And so life is all about what I decide to do in the moment. What's pragmatic? What's utilitarian? What makes sense at this time? What helps me get ahead? What gives me security in my life? Or even just helps me kind of get along with everybody. The kingdom of God is neither the way of the strong man, nor the way of utilitarian pragmatism. It is something completely different. It is a better journey, it is a better story, it is a better authority and a better kingship. As our lectionary texts today point out, the, and some of these texts are a little obvious for Christ the King as we read them. These three texts that we have basically tell us this straight fact. Remember, Jesus is king <laughs> over everything. There's not much to dig through other than the fact that Jesus is king. Remember that. Now we can read this in kind of a Sunday school way. Can read these texts and go, yes, God's in control, and that means I'm one of his kids, so I'm in control. Yay, good for us, good for God. But I think we miss it if we don't allow the kingship of Jesus to truly be the subversive kingship that it is for us. The kingdom of God should always challenge us. We should always be challenged by this subversiveness of how different God's authority is from our authority and the authorities that we seek. 
In one of our texts today, Daniel chapter 7, we have this really like trippy apocalyptic vision that Daniel has, if you read it. And the prophet Daniel is given this vision of these great four beasts that come out of the sea. And if you know much about the scriptural story, you'll know that the seas are kind of symbolic all throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. The seas represent that which is chaotic, that which is murky, that which we don't fully understand. It was believed in the ancient world that evil came out of the seas. There were all kinds of sea monsters, so everything that was evil and dark originated in the sea. That was all pagan religions kind of believed that. It wasn't really uh, viewed as something that were known. The seas were not well known. In fact, one of the major threads throughout the Old Testament is this idea that Yahweh is Lord even over the seas. Even over that which is chaotic and dark, Yahweh is Lord. Even over those things we don't fully understand, Yahweh is the Lord of that. So in the pagan world where it was believed there was a God of the seas who was in charge and he was chaotic and all evil kind of came out of there, the Old Testament and the Bible tells us that Yahweh is actually the Lord over the sea. So if you see this throughout the scriptural story, in the creation story, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. And human beings are eventually tasked with carrying out the ordering of God in the chaos. In the book of Exodus, we have this story where God's people are faced with this obstacle. They're pinned in on both sides. So they have Pharaoh's army on one side as they've left Egypt. And then they have the Red Sea on the other side. If you're not familiar with this story, there's a trendy cutting-edge movie with Charlton Heston in it that you should probably watch. But they're stuck and they've got Pharaoh's army on one side and they've got this sea on the other side and they're not sure what they're going to do. And Yahweh parts the sea because he is Lord of the sea. He's Lord of the chaos. They're not tasked to go around the sea. They're tasked to go through it. Then we see in the New Testament that Jesus both walks on the waters and calms the waters. These are not random miracles that Jesus does. Yahweh is the sovereign Lord over even those things that are dark and mysterious to the world. And Jesus exercises that authority. So in Daniel 7, there's these four beasts that come out of the sea. And they're really creepy beasts. One of them is like a lion, and he has the wings of an eagle and a mind of a human. I don't even know what that would look like. One looks like a bear, but it has ribs in its mouth. One looks like a leopard with wings and four heads. And then the fourth is different, and it has ten horns and large iron teeth. Okay, so these creepy sci-fi beasts coming out of the sea. And it says they were all ruling. And they're eating human flesh, and they're trampling, and they're devouring. That's what they're doing. Well, this is an image for us of the pagan empires of the world. That they are those things that are allowed to rule for a time. They are those things which devour, which dominate, which are self-serving, which seek power above anything else. That's these beasts that come out of the sea. And Daniel says this in chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So we have God here. 
the Ancient of Days. And this is consistent with the Old Testament, that there are beasts. There are things which raise their head. There are things which are murky and chaotic and come from evil that claim authority. And then at the end of the day, there is one who's seated on the throne, the Ancient of Days. Yahweh proves himself here to have authority over all of them. But the vision doesn't end there. There's another figure. It says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we have the Ancient of Days, we have God sitting on the throne here, he is ruling over everything, and then there is this other figure, the Son of Man. And that phrase is, has a lot of baggage to it in the ancient world and in the Old Testament, that basically, it's just a word for, there's a human being. There is a defenseless human being in the midst of all of these beasts, in the midst of all of this chaos, and the God who rules over the world, there is authority given to this human being. Okay, so in the Old Testament, this was probably an image for Israel itself. That Israel was God's son, chosen as God's people to carry forth his authority in the world. It also spoke to a future Messiah who would embody that. And in the Christian tradition, we know that that Messiah is Jesus. This one who stands in the midst of the beasts and the evil and the seas and all of those things. And he carries out God's authority as God himself. The sense here and this reminder from the book of Daniel is those things which are dark in the world, which are evil, murky, the unexplained chaos doesn't have the final word, that it's not the final authority. I think in our lives we are faced with a lot of things that are blatantly evil, but rarely do they show themselves as such. Often truth is obscured. Situations are murky and messy. They are like that which comes from the sea. And sometimes if a situation is clear and it's black and white, then we have a bit more confidence. But what do we do in situations where we can't fully see it all clearly? Where it looks like these authorities kind of claim to have authority, but it's messy and it's difficult and we don't know what to do. Where does our confidence come from there? Israel was compiling this story when they sat in exile in Babylon, wrestling with the murkiness of their own situation. They heard this text. They heard this vision. They're thinking, we're God's chosen people. We've been called out. Our ancestors were liberated from captivity in Egypt. We were given this land. We were set free to inherit this land, but now we've lost it. And now we're in this foreign place. We're in Babylon. And our stories don't even mean, seem to make sense. And We've almost forgotten them, and we can't even sing the old songs that we used to sing because our story doesn't even come together. We don't even knew, know who we are. We don't even know what our identity is. Everything is murky, and yet they're reminded in Daniel chapter 7 that God has authority over even those things that are murky, over the unknown. What does this possibly have to do for us? Well, I don't know about you, but when situations get murky in my life, my temptation just to throw my hands up, I don't know. I don't know what to do, right? I don't know what the next step is here. Perhaps in your life you're dealing with murkiness. What is it you're facing that is beyond your control? I have some dear friends who are going through a divorce, and this Thanksgiving was the first time for them 
to speak to their families. Um, I have some other friends who um, are pregnant, and they've told us that they're pregnant, and uh, yet it's early, and their last pregnancy ended in miscarriage. Um, both are crying, <laughs> both are questioning, both are praying. Situations feel murky, they don't know what to do. We are reminded in Daniel's vision that in the midst of murkiness, in the midst of things we don't understand, that God is at work. And that we anticipate that day where we will see God's authority in full, where all wrongs will be undone. In John 18 and throughout the Gospels in the life of Jesus, we see that this kingdom that we're part of, the kingship of Jesus, is very different than any other kingdom that we see. I think in our culture, we don't like talking about kingship very much. <laughs> we value freedom of a specific kind. Um, many of us translate freedom as the idea to kind of do whatever we want to do. It's an individualistic freedom. So I can make good choices or I can make bad choices and no community, no government, no religion better tell me what to do. That's true freedom, right? In fact, I want to suggest that that's even our highest and most important value in our culture is that our decisions are up to us individually. We have in many ways lived this rightly in contrast to tyranny, which would be the other side. The power that comes through domination. So tyranny is this idea where we've been coerced or we've been beaten into submission. We've been told and controlled to do this right thing. Or we see tyranny more subtly when we're marketed to <laughs> or we're coerced, right? Um, I don't know about you, I, I was pleased on um, Thanksgiving Day, at the end of the day, and I checked my email and I didn't have any emails. It's like, wow, that's really cool that we don't get a lot of emails. And they saved them all for the next day. Um, <laughs> and you open up and every vendor that I've ever bought anything from <laughs> is marketing to me on that day, right? There is a subtle coercion, a subtle control, a need to a certain story that tries to, to dominate our lives, a narrative that seeks to dominate our lives. So much of the ancient and modern world have been built on this idea there is one right way that rules the world. The goal of the world is to get everyone else in the world to follow the right way, to follow the right story, which is my story. Right? And we all have different ideas as to what that right story is. So throughout history, we see this tension between Islam and Christianity, capitalism and communism, the traditional and the progressive, the right and the left, the conservative and the liberal. So we have wars about it, and we have crusades about it, and slavery, and bombings, and on and on, in order to dominate those who are not like me, and to bring them into the right way. That's the history of civilization. And in our postmodern kind of milieu, there's this tendency to react to that by saying, I'm done with domination. I'm done with saying that there's one right story. I'm done with having all these people tell me that this way is the right way. Or I'm done with trying to convince people that my way is the right way. So we throw our hands up. We say maybe there is no one true story. Maybe there's just a bunch of tribal stories. We need to do whatever's practical in the moment. Whatever makes sense. Stop convincing people. Stop coercing people. Stop doing things that lead to this domination or this tyranny that we looked at. The problem with that side of the coin is that when we say there's no story, when we say we just want to do whatever we want, what actually happens is we can become dominated by our wants. 
We can become dominated by our desires. When we lack authority, when we, become, we then become subject to every inclination in our lives. We trade the tyranny of government or a system or a religion for a tyranny of our own desires. Or more specifically, money becomes king. We can do whatever we want to make it. Maybe out of greed or maybe just a desperate sense that money's where our security comes from. I just need to make more, more money so I can be more secure. Or maybe it's not money. Maybe approval becomes our king. We can lay aside our pleasures and our desires and our wants in order to receive praise from our friends and neighbors. Life is lived in pursuit of community acceptance. Or security itself becomes our king. We delay gratification, which is fine. We, we don't need to be in control, but we need someone to keep us safe. Keep us safe from those people. Will they keep us safe? Will they keep us secure from those people? Safe from bad things happening. So in our lives, we live in this tension between tyranny and a kind of individualism, which becomes itself a kind of tyranny. We live in that back and forth. So as Christians living in this kind of world, we're faced with this dilemma. Do we believe in one dominating story? Do we believe in one story that's better than all of the others? And if so, if we believe in that, isn't it our job to get everybody on board by whatever means necessary? Like, isn't that the goal? And I think that question that we ask today, do you have a dominant story, is the same question as it hangs in the air, it's the same question that hung in the air when it was asked of Jesus by Pilate. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you here to fight for a dominant story? Pilate wants to know, are you going to try to usurp my kingdom? Are you asserting a certain kind of kingship? And Jesus' response is so cryptic and so frustrating and also so subversive and powerful for us today. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. We serve the first and only king in the history of the world whose authority doesn't come through domination or coercion. That doesn't come about by the means of the world. Instead, his authority and his kingship comes about through his own self-giving love. Pilate then tries to make sense of this kingship in the context of what he knows about power. So it's almost like he says, so you're a king then. Is that what you're saying? You are claiming to have authority over me. <laughs> but Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And in a verse that just missed our reading today, it's just outside of our reading Pilate simply asked Jesus, what is truth? We as a society are kind of asking that question, aren't we? What is truth? We've always asked it, but it feels more poignant today. What is truth really? We live in a world longing for truth, longing for authority, longing for someone to tell us what direction is right and true and good and beautiful. And our reaction to such a world is often just to make our voice louder. If we just speak louder and we're more convincing and our arguments are more hostile, if we shame, if we coerce, then maybe that'll cause other people to submit to the right way. 
This often leads to violence because the cycle of violence just builds on itself. So when we're angry to one another, when we lash out in anger towards one another, that just continues to build. There's no such thing as like one act of violence that ends every other act of violence. It just continues to grow and continues to build so our society becomes more and more hostile over time. Truth in the way of Jesus is always expressed not in domination, but in self-giving love, in Jesus himself. Truth, we'd say, is a person. Christ's authority is proven true in his self-giving love. Our God has always been the self-giving God. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is we don't always like that. <laughs> we don't like to submit to authority because we are usurpers. We try to sub sub usurp God's loving, self-giving authority. And our authority always shows itself in this attempt to be dominating. Either we try to dominate or we try to find somebody who can kind of dominate our world and dominate us in this way. We have to, as God's people, learn the language of self-giving love. In fact, I've heard this before. It, we want an authority that's loud, and so we try to, like, mimic that. We could just be more convincing, if we could be more coercive, if we could be more dominating. And sometimes we go, well, maybe that's not right, but it's just the way the world works. So we throw up our hands and we go, I have to be this way, because this is how the world works and how it, it's how it operates. Those of us who are parents, we see this in children a lot. Um, my daughter Lucy is five years old, and she is a blessing. Um, she was a newborn when we moved from Tulsa to Nashville, and she has developed into this beautiful, powerful force in the world, okay? And there are times where her independent streak and her um, power <laughs> is shown in such amazing ways. And there are times they are not the most helpful, okay? Last week, she was disappointed that we didn't celebrate fully her half birthday. Let that sink in for a minute. We didn't fully celebrate her half birthday. Not, okay. I knew that she was frustrated by this, and I wanted to surprise her, okay? So I, it was my day to pick her up from school, and so I showed up at school, and I wanted to take her to a movie, okay, which is one of her favorite things to do. So I picked her up, and I started driving to the theater, and when she found out where we were going, she got so excited. She freaked out. <laughs> she was so excited about where we were going. So we go and we see the movie and we sit through it and afterwards we get out of the theater and parents, you know this, I just can't get her to the car, okay? <laughs> just can't get her out to the car and she's looking at every poster and she sees this like little trinket, um, those things you put quarters in, you buy these little trinkets, um, the fidget spinners, she wanted one of those and she's just, please can I get one of these, please can I get one? And I realized that we needed to go, we needed to get dinner that night and as, as dad and the family, I knew our gourmet options for that evening were we'd get a pizza from Aldi or we'd drive through Chick-fil-A, okay? So I gave her those options and she is going out in the parking lot and she points. There's a steak and shake right across the street. She says, I want to go there. She's never been to steak and shake before. She doesn't even know what that is. But that's what she wants. It's whatever I'm not doing. <laughs> it's what she wants to do. So finally, we get settled in the car. Chick-fil-A has been our decision. She lets out a huge sigh, and then she says, worst day ever. 
And as a parent, you know I'm grinding my teeth at this point. I'm going, I surprised you at a movie. I'm going to surprise you with this Chick-fil-A drive-thru. This is supposed to be something fun. I want you to be thankful here. And I'm starting to get really frustrated. But I realize that my role at her parent, as her parent here is not to dominate, right? It's not to coerce. It's not to manipulate. It's not to respond to her anger with a louder voice. So we empathize first. We empathize with her frustration and disappointment, even though she doesn't see the full perspective, right? We empathize with that. We recognize that. And then we begin to try to lead her towards thankfulness. Okay, what has happened today? (laughs) And what are some ways that even though you're disappointed, some better ways that we can express that disappointment, right? But I couldn't help but think that whole time that I am so much that way in my life, (laughs) that I've been so blessed and yet I get distracted by fidget spinners, right? I get so distracted by all of these things. I usurp God's calling over and over again. My perspective of his love and his care for me is limited, and I don't realize there's a bigger story than what I can see. This is maybe why it's so difficult for Jesus' followers to see his kingdom for what it really is. Even as suffering was at the heart of the story of God throughout the Old Testament, this idea that God's chosen king, the Messiah, would die was so unheard of. It wasn't even on their radar. Another Lucy story, sorry, but last week I read a book to Lucy, and the book is a children's book called She Persisted, and it's talking about how women stood up for what's right and changed history throughout history. And included in this book was the story of Rosa Parks and her decision to remain seated on a bus in Montgomery. And it opened up an opportunity for me to talk to Lucy about race and about our country's really greatest sin, slavery and racism. And as I couched it historically, I was able to say that we still have issues in our country. This isn't just something that's limited to history, that people of color experience our world quite differently and are still not afforded the same opportunities as many of us. We even opened it up to talk about some people in her class who may experience the world differently than she's going to and may not have the same opportunities that she would have. And little Lucy, with her bravest face on, (laughs) said, well, I will persist so that will not happen. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's naive. (laughs) I know that's optimistic. (laughs) I know it's myopic, but my heart warmed to hear her say that. That she wanted to be a part of the defeat of the great monster from the sea, racism. And I love that in her. She will persist and resist and join God's work of bringing about his kingdom. And yet she still sometimes persists against me. (laughs) I am the object of the resistance in my household often. At her school, they teach her a few basic uh, sign language signs. So around the house, if we ask her questions, a lot of times she will do this for yes and this for no, okay? And I think part of that is, in a, part of it is the beauty of them teaching them sign language. But the other part is when you've got 20 kids in a room, you don't want them all shouting out yes or no all the time. So you have these, you know, sign language signals. So we do that, and we kind of got used to that, that she does this and she does this around the house. But there is also nothing more aggravating than when we're in a restaurant and she runs to the other side of the restaurant, and I say, Lucy come here. And she stands and she raises a strong silent hand and says no, right? 
She is resisting me. It's like the Hunger Games or something, right? She's resisting me. And yet, we all at times resist the right things and resist the wrong things. Sometimes we resist what's, what's evil in our world and we join God's work and God's kingdom and his authority. And sometimes we resist his loving authority in our lives and in the world. We often resist what is good and right and centered on love. We resist the loving Father's care. We say no. We resist and we turn to distractions and to counterfeits. And perhaps today, Christ the King Sunday is a way of reminding us that it is our loving Father who rules the world. Not in a way that's dominating and coercive like a tyrant. And not in the way of all the structures and systems that look like they're in control of our world. Jesus is King. As Christians, along with the saints throughout history, we have an opportunity to be a people of that different story, to be a people of self-giving love. Unfortunately, Christians have often been known as the coercers, as the dominators. Even in recent years, we've been told that the key to getting people on our side is a kind of apologetics that just convinces people of Jesus, beats them over the head with some sort of truth. And our temptation sometimes is when that doesn't work, we shrink back from our story. We stop telling our story because things seem murky in a foreign land. But that won't do either. Because the only narrative that stands true in a world like ours is the story of the God who chose self-giving love over domination. Who chose love over fear. Who chose death over self-preservation. That's the only story that will stand true. And of course, self-giving love is not the same as weakness. It's not being a doormat. It doesn't mean lying down in the face of injustice. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we yield to Christ's authority in our lives, when we trust that true justice only happens under his reign by the Holy Spirit, we are invited to participate in that reign. He is making the world right and he invites us to join in, but we always join in with empty hands. We always join in and recognize it is his kingdom and we are dependent on him. When Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Jesus responds with crickets, with nothing, with silence. Why? Because he is the truth and he is about to live out that truth on the cross. And it says that Pilate stands in the middle of the silence of Jesus, and the text says he was amazed. In last Sunday's lectionary text, if you, were, um, if you know this story, Hannah was praying. She was praying for a son. And the priest Eli was amazed by her and actually thought she was drunk because she was praying and she was moving her mouth and no words were coming out. It was just silence. The frustrating thing for us is that our God often works in silence, in the quiet, in the still small voice, not in the dominating loud narratives of our world. Our God is at work in the silence. In our world, we're baffled by silence, but that is where God is active. As we close today, um, a couple reminders for us. First of all, no matter what it looks like in your life or in the world, I hope we're reminded today that we have been rescued from the monsters of the sea. God is Lord over the sea. 
He was Lord at creation. He was at the Red Sea when he parted it, and he told Israel to walk through it. And in Christ, the great sea of sin and death has been conquered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in your baptism, you were plunged into the sea and came out on the other side. You were plunged into the chaos and came out with a new identity and a new authority. And as baptized people, we are now plunged into the chaos of our world and of our own lives, into suffering and struggle and doubt and pain, the place where Jesus is, joining him, reminding humanity of who we are created to be. And finally, I hope we're reminded today that we are part of a new kingdom that will never end. Our God is Lord of the world, and we will see that world made right. That is our great hope. This is what we hold to when things seem murky. That we have a new identity, and the world is a whole new place because of him. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious, loving God, we are thankful today for your authority, for your kingship in our world. We are thankful, even as we are a people who resist any concept of kingship, because of what we've seen, because of the dominating narratives that we've seen, because of the way that authority has been so abused in our world. We are thankful that yours is so different, (laughs) that you have laid down your life for us and for the world. Today, we desire to be a people who live under that new authority of self-giving love. May we be a people who, as we are plunged in the chaos and in the seas of our world, that we live with a new identity and a new authority. May we be a people of love. Give us the strength as we mess up over and over again, as we choose counterfeits over and over again, as we seek security and control and approval, power. Lord, help us to live differently, to trust in who you are, to resist evil, and to turn to your loving care. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.